1: Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And the end we are considering today is the end of the world of politics. Last week, we spoke with historian Kevin A. Young about the police as a political force, which is not how the police want to be seen. Yesterday, when speaking with writer and editor Simon Waxman, we discussed how those within the highest reaches of U.S. foreign and national security policy like to think their policymaking is apolitical, driven by nothing but practicality and rationalism, and like the police, definitely outside of politics. They're arguing that if it wasn't for all these problematic politics, everything would be great. The reason foreign policy, for instance, foreign policy initiatives driven by war fail is, as Simon explains when it comes to the national security and foreign policy point of view, a sudden bout of politics and not because of any military blunder or strategic error in launching a war in the first place. And as libertarians have been telling us normies for years, the only problem with capitalism is all that government interference. If they could only write a program or come up with an app, Silicon Valley could certainly cook a platform that can handle all the things stupid, inefficient, clumsy, costly government and its neurotic sidekick politics do. And it can be done a lot better by those Silicon Valley types. So what is this world without politics that anarcho-capitalists want? Can we become free from the state, secede, and leave the lumbering husk of inefficiencies behind? And what if we are already leaving that world behind with the creation of zones within nations that exist outside those nations' laws? author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Quinn is the award winning author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which was the winner of the American Historical Association's George Lewis Beer Prize, and has been translated into six languages. Quinn is a historian of modern Germany and international history who has been Marion Butler McLean Professor of the History of Ideas at Wellesley College, since 2022, he previously was a residential fellow at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, Harvard University, in 2017 and 2018. Quinn will join the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University as professor of international history this coming January. You can find out more about Quinn at quinSlobodian.com and follow Quinn on Twitter at ZeitHistoriker. That's zeit H i s t o r i k e r, Zeit Historiker. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new by you, sir?
2: Ah, uh, not a whole lot. I'm about to be uh, home alone for like the next week. Beth's going on a trip to Miami. So it's why just going to be me and the dog, her friend lives down there. Oh, okay. Yeah, otherwise, That's I mean, there's a saying. reason why she's never been. Right? <laughs>
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> I never want to
1: go south of the Mason Dixon line. I'm telling you, I'm averse to anything south of the Mason Dixon line. Yeah. And then when you get to the equator, I'm fine with south of
2: the equator. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just that that space in between.
1: For some reason.
2: Yeah, uh, there's a handful of cool spots, but they're definitely the exception, Yeah, at at least stateside. Yeah,
1: Mason-Dixon down to the Rio Grande. That area, not going into, very, very concerned about it. (laughs) Your concerns are warranted. Spent time in uh, LA and San Diego and Long Beach, and that wasn't even worth it. So a year ago, I was still recuperating from an infection from sepsis that nearly killed me. After several surgeries and more than two weeks in the hospital, I was at home, recovering, very slowly. I'd finally built up my strength to the point that I could spend a few minutes every so often sitting up at my computer and finally catching up on nearly two months of messages. Despite the fact that I still did not have the strength to descend the three flights of stairs from our third-floor apartment, let alone walk the block and a half over here to our studio. I was already trying to plan a date to return to the show. However, while I was not here doing This Is how our producers were. Alexander Jerry, Sebastian Vooper, Lindsey Gorey, and Dan Hill were here hosting In My Stead while playing interviews from our 26-year archive of conversations dating way back to 1996. Without them, without Alex, Sub, Lindsay, and Dan, this show would not have been able to happen. During that time, as we were not providing new content, we lost around 15% of our Patreon subscribers, and we have yet to get that support back. Please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by either going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, support or subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday at 10 a.m. U.S. Central Time here in Chicago. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
2: This week's question from hell is, what's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? What's a disaster that will make
1: you (laughs) happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want. There's the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going over to thisishell.com and again clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. If you're on Discord, you can leave your response there, and if you are a Patreon patron, we also have a place at our Patreon page where you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hal. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Will, what's Jeff doing during the moment of truth this week? Jeff talks up the half-ass ethos <laughs> The half-ass ethos, I like that It's completely different I... from the CYA ethos Exactly, <laughs> exactly. and the whole-ass ethos <laughs> Exactly, unbelievably Summer is right around the corner, you know how I know it's summer that summer's upon us Last weekend, I realized we are only three months out from our annual This Is How Listener Appreciation and Anniversary Party and Art Show, This Is Art And this year we are celebrating our 20 7th year on air at WNUR-FM, Chicago's sound experiment, where we started broadcasting way back in 1996 and began streaming and podcasting to the entire world back in 2001, four days after 9-11. We're now on a second outlet here in the Chicago area, as well as stations in Winnipeg, Moscow, Idaho, that is, and in London in the UK, just or just join us, join us, join us in celebrating 27 years on air on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, C A R Y S, 2251 West Devon Avenue, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. But you're probably wondering why I get so excited when it's still free, three freaking months away. First, Listeners may want to make travel plans, and as we have had people join us from all over the Americas and as far away as freaking Scotland, making those kinds of arrangements can be difficult and take a lot of time. Second, because we want to make certain you mark your calendar Saturday, July 22nd, 3 p.m., Carrie's Lounge. This is Hell Party. Put it in your calendar now. Third, this is a listener appreciation party with music, art, food, and a raffle, so if you are a musician who would like to play our party or are in a band that would like to perform, contact me at chuck at and send me a sample of your music. Remember, you will be p- playing while people are talking, drinking, and partying, so you got to be cool with that. Or if you know a musical act that you would like to uh, have play at the party Just send your suggestion to chuck at If you are an artist or know an artist That would be a perfect match for our annual This is Art opening and show Send a sample of your work Or your suggested artist's work Artists, we do not take any com- uh, Commission whatsoever So 100% of all proceeds All sales go directly to you Finally, if you have something that you would like to donate, so we can put it in the raffle and give it out as a prize, send your suggestion and an image of the potential prize again to chuckitthisishell.com. That's Saturday, July 22nd, the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And we already have one prize donated, the Tessa. Collective, T-E-S-A Collective, has sent us a card game called Space Cats Fight Fascism. Space Cats Fight Fascism. And who knows, maybe Space Cats Fight Fascism can be yours if you join us for the raffle during our upcoming party on Saturday, July 22nd, with music, food, art, a raffle, and awesome gifts like the Tessa Collective's Space Cats Fight Fascism. I have been so tempted to open up that game and figure out how to play, but I've left it shrink-wrapped, and I really wish I wouldn't have. Coming up, can capitalism overcome democracy? Will has more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll tell you what's happening next week here on the show, and Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell and the abyss we are staring into today is the belief that we can all shut off the burdens of the state and move into our new crypto future of nothing but capital dictating our existence while this brave new world ruled by the market offers us the freedom the state and democracy could never provide. Or not, mostly, not Joining us is historian Quinn Slobodian, author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Welcome to This is Hell, Quinn.
0: Good to be back.
1: Thank you so much for being back on our show. You write that in 2009, the then 41-year-old venture capitalist Peter Thiel, having made a small fortune by founding PayPal and investing early in Facebook, he had just taken a huge hit in the financial crisis the year before. He now had one thing on his mind, how to escape from the tax-collecting democratic state. You then quote Thiel writing, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible. The great task for libertarians is to find an escape from politics in all its forms. What do you think Theo believes is a world that is absent politics? What would such a world look like in his fantasy?
0: Well, he's an interesting one to track because he goes from this kind of um, seasteading moment uh, circa 2009 where he thinks we need to sort of multiply the number of polities and states in the world. And basically create kind of gated communities out in the high seas where people can just sign contracts that um, dictate everything that they can and can't do. And democracy becomes a kind of anachronistic um, article of yesteryear. He goes from that to, of course, as we now know him, um, making most of his money through Palantir and getting largely state contracts, you know, running things for police departments, running things for the for the branches of the federal government. So he's a kind of a libertarian who has discovered that the easier thing than making a new state is to just, you know, help capture an old one. Um but in his wake there have been many others who sort of keep this dream alive of multiplying different spaces globally that could become um yeah these kind of like cruise ship like entities where you can be free of the kind of the grasping poor and write laws on a blank slate. What's
1: democracy keeping Thiel from doing right now? We have had guests on the show say that capitalism and democracy are incompatible in the past, but nobody has ever said that means we need to get rid of democracy. What is the freedom that Thiel thinks or believes is incompatible with democracy? What is democracy keeping him from doing?
0: So this was really the the kind of opening puzzle of the whole book, not necessarily only to do with Peter Thiel, but actually with Milton Friedman and his gang, because it was specifically in the 1980s, like right in the middle of the, you know, the most triumphant phase of Reaganism in the US and Thatcherism in Great Britain, that I was reading uh, the records of these these meetings that Friedman and others were having, and they were actually concerned about this too. They were worried that democracy was still getting in the way of capitalism. And that was the puzzle for me. And it, it's this another way of rephrasing your question about Teal, which is just like, if you've become this wealthy, if you've transformed expectations this much, that wouldn't it seem to you that capitalism and democracy are mutually complementary in some kind of a way that you can, you know, certainly live with? And that sort of, led me to sort of go down more of the alley of asking what it was they were actually afraid of about democracy. And there, it was quite interesting to see a kind of a post-Cold War story, really, where communism had died, according to people like Milton Friedman and his friends, Um, but it had been reborn in a green form. So already in 1989, 1990, they start saying literally the same things that you know Fox News bangs on about every night now, which is that, you know, the new socialists are the environmentalists, the feminists, and people arguing for civil rights and affirmative action. Um and this menace, however sort of nascent, is going to kind of swallow up the possibilities for freedom in the near future. So there's always this speculation about like the coming power grab by the supposedly um you know bloodthirsty left that's like waiting in the wings and that discourse of kind of imminent threat was really important for all of the people i write about in the book but for peter Thiel too right there's this idea that that the woke progressives are just sharpening their knives and and waiting for their moment so you need to kind of you need to make plans for your escape now before it's too late
1: we are speaking with historian Quinn Slobodian. He was on our show back in January of 2021 when he was joined by William Collison, and they talked about his Boston Review article, uh, Corona Politics, from the Reichstag to the Capitol. You also point out that a standard globe shows an uneven mosaic of colors, pixelated more densely in Europe and Africa, easing out to broader chromatic stretches across Asia and North America. This is a familiar uh, vision of the world, the one that we have been taught since grade school, the one that Thiel was referring to each patch of land with its own flag, its own anthem, its own national costume and cuisine. The opening parade of the uh, Olympic Games performs this version of the globe every couple of years reassuring us that it is a small world after all. What does the opening ceremony of the Olympics, what does that view of the world must mislead us into? How does a globe affect the way that we misunderstand our world?
0: Well, this is, you know, something that I have thought a lot about sort of ever since I was a child, really. As a child, I was really obsessed with atlases and flags and maps and you know i created like a little notebook where i where i drew out the flags myself and made notes about you know population size like just real strong like nerd childhood stuff Um and into my adulthood i think i still thought about the world primarily that way as a, a you know organized according to the political categories of nation states and i and the world of economics and capitalism was was just something that was beyond my comprehension or something that I, I would never be able to apprehend, so I might not I might as well not even try. I think that 2008 and the global financial crisis, you know to which Thiel himself was responding in that opening anecdote, was a kind of a wake-up call for me and also a, a revelation that, in fact the world of economics not only was it. Of something that was determining the possibilities of our lives every day. But it was also not beyond human comprehension, right? I mean, even if it was hard to understand all of the collateralized debt obligations and the, the financial chicanery that led to the crisis itself, it wasn't impossible to get your head around. And so ever since then, I've kind of been in part of, I guess, a bit of a movement among historians to try to take on topics of political economy and take on topics of capitalism, even though we are not trained as economists, which many economic historians are. So what that means, I think, is to sort of say, you know, what are the lines of power? What are the concentrations of authority and kind of decision making that exist that are not just, you know, legislatures or not just heads of state uh, that, you know, you can't easily capture in a in a lineup of flags outside of the plaza of the United Nations headquarters. So in short, you know, what is the parallel kind of decision-making structure for capitalism? What is the kind of economic government of the world, if you like? Uh, that's a title of a, a recent book by an excellent Cambridge economics historian. Um, so there, you know, this this is an empirical question on the one hand, which is just like, all right. How is money allocated? How are decisions made about opening up factories? And that question can then lead pretty quickly to questions about geography and space. Um, if you ask the question, you know, why is a factory opened in state A instead of state B? Well, it turns out it's often has to do with incentives and tax holidays and you know relief from labor legislation that one state can offer or is willing to offer and another is not. And where those kind of offers take place where they come down to earth are in these places that are called zones. So they're sometimes now in the sort of Trump era, opportunity zones. In the past, they've been called things like empowerment zones. Special economic zones is the overall category, which describes a a map of the world according to the way that capital sees it. So the way that investors see the world, the way that financiers see the world. Isn't necessarily primarily through this sort of multicolored um, parade of flags, as I say in the book, but it's a much more sort of a densely pixelated map of economic spaces. So that's sort of one half of the book is really an attempt to say, like, how can we sort of put these, like, they live style sunglasses on or off and see the kind of globe of capitalism drawing there on the work of geographers and anthropologists and people who've been writing about this stuff for years. And then the other half of the book is like an intellectual history of the people like Peter Thiel, who see that world too, and are very kind of enchanted by it and are asking themselves, you know, why can't that sort of pixelated world of capitalism replace or displace even more profoundly the political world of nation states?
1: I always find it so surprising every time that somebody makes a reference to the movie they live. It happens so often on our show. I bet it does. <laughs> it happens all of the time. Yeah. Uh, you, so, but you uh, write that uh, Teal cast the idea of a world of thousands of uh, polities as the utopian dream of a future reality. What he didn't mention was that. Future he was describing in many ways already existed in just the way that you were just describing in these kind of zones that they have. And you write that this modern world is pockmarked, perforated, tattered and jagged, ripped up and pinpricked. Inside the containers of nations are unusual legal spaces anomalous territories and peculiar jurisdictions there are city states havens enclaves free ports high tech parks duty free districts and innovation hubs the world of nations is riddled with zones and they define the politics of the present in ways we are only starting to understand. And you describe these zones as an enclave carved out of a nation and freed from ordinary forms of regulation. The usual powers of taxation are often suspended within its borders, letting investors uh, effectively dictate their own rules. The zones are quasi extraterritorial, both of the host state and distinct from it. How new are these politics of the present, the politics behind these zones that exist outside yet within the state that we are only now starting to understand? How new is this politics of the present?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can say something about the history of them. And then I can also say why I felt like it was important to shine a light on them now. The history of it is is interesting enough. Um, We can sort of well, we could. I mean, historians historians are famous for sort of saying like, well, you have to go a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier until you're in like the the ancient like Phoenician free port of Delos and like the classical period. But like the more recent modern history of these zones is can be placed in a few different places. One is Puerto Rico in the 1950s, attempting to bring in um, American manufacturing capital to take advantage of low wages and lax regulation on the island. You know, they set up these these little ring fence spaces where there would be a different set of laws than outside to encourage investors. For the same reason the similar things were set up in Taiwan in the 1960s, um, as a way to um reassure mobile American mostly capital that you know they could have some kind of oversight, transparency, rule of law, and would have to be and would not have to worry about. The what they would might see as the potentially chaotic local politics. Some of the places that were set up were things like, you know, textile production primarily and pharmaceuticals in in Puerto Rico. But before too long, you'd be doing things like building semiconductors in those export processing zones, as they were known in Taiwan. So there were these isolated examples of setting these up the Caribbean, Honduras. um, They were there were sort of like the beginnings of the outsourcing movement in the 60s and 70s. They would often use these sort of little footprint spots in um, countries that scattered across the world to you know, manufacture some part of a product. But it really only took off in the 1980s and 90s, and mostly there are there, the important places, China, which takes on the special economic zone as really the way that, it opened up to the global market. I mean, this is an essential thing to understand that China didn't do a kind of overnight style shock therapy like the Soviet Union or other Eastern European states, but it sort of very strategically opened up these little pinprick uh geographical spaces that would have a different set of laws. So only within that small space could you, you know, re-commodify land and labor, have foreign direct investment, foreign ownership. And those you know that sort of honeycomb of zones ended up expanding up the from the coastal cities of the south until it has you know almost covered the the country with a bunch of uh, many different sort of legal jurisdictions and legal sets of uh, inducements and regulations so that since then has become the great success story in countries across especially sub-saharan Africa and Latin America constantly trying to figure out how hey, they can emulate the Chinese model and have a new Shenzhen or a new Hong Kong of their own. That seems like, you know, not that connected to the politics of the recent past, except maybe as kind of empirical question of like, well, how has development happened recently in recent decades? But the reason why I found it worthwhile to sort of bring into the public conversation now is these Debates that people have been having about the end of democracy or the death of democracy, especially since 2016, right, with the unpleasant to many people victories of Brexit in the UK and Trump in the United States and a series of right-wing parties across Eastern and Western Europe, people were talking about democracy being in peril. And usually when they were doing that, I found they were having the conversation as if democracy just sort of lived and died in the space of politics alone, and especially in, you know, party politics, you know. So why was democracy dying? Well, populists were stirring up anger in the popular classes and, you know, switching the, creating a sea change at the ballot box. But for me, when I look at these zones in which, which are kind of laboratories for capitalism without democracy in many cases, in most cases, Part of the reason why democracy is in peril or democracy is in danger is because the best examples of sort of economic success across the last few decades have been all of these little kind of jurisdictions and territories. And whether you think about Singapore or Dubai in these terms as well, these were being held up as examples, not just by sort of wild-eyed rightists. But, you know, the Labour Party in the UK was equally interested in Singapore as the Conservative Party was. Um, Dubai, the light of Dubai shines very bright in the world's capitals Is something that people should emulate. So democracy was in trouble, partially because everyone is trying to imitate these non-democratic authoritarian versions of capitalism in their own way. And bringing that kind of global perspective into the conversation for me, just kind of shifted the emphasis away from just, you know, democracy is um, in danger because populists have decided to stir up the masses. It seems to me you could look at the level of kind of elite emulation and capitalist um, sort of policy models that have sort of gone viral and moved around the world um, and find sort of the roots just as much there of things that we should be concerned about.
1: So why are we only starting to understand these zones now? Why are we only having attention brought to them now if they have been around for a while? Is the media, for instance, ignoring these zones?
0: Well, I mean, I think sometimes they get hived off into like what seems like a really arcane and often quite boring and sort of wonkish category of just policy talk. So, in in development circles, for example, you know these special economic zones have been discussed for forever, for decades. But you know, th- there's a there's a kind of a soporific or kind of stultifying thing about the the idea of a special economic zone that just sounds like a kind of it just sounds like a boring label that bureaucrats put on things. But especially in the UK, I mean, this book has gotten. Most pick up in Britain, and for very good reason, because the current government under Rishi Sunak and the one before him, the very short-lived government of Liz Truss, was really fixated on this idea of bringing back growth to Britain by creating a bunch of these zones. Um, They call them free ports in some cases, investment zones in others. But I tell the whole genealogy of this in the book, it dates back to the late 1970s, and it's about kind of a fascination with rising East Asia, the fascination with Asian tiger economies like Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And it's a, it's a belief that sort of Western capitalism is moribund, it's, it's on its way out, it's in decline, it's sclerotic partially because there's too much democracy there's too many veto points too many interest groups everyone's trying to capture the state for their own re- their own interests and this fascination with the kind of juggernauts of these tiny places like Singapore since the 70s is something that was really infectious and perhaps is only like you know really touching down or hitting the popular consciousness in a place like Britain after their departure from the European Union so it's it's it strikes me that it like many things you know back to the they live sunglasses metaphor you know if you don't have the glasses then you're not going to see the sort of everyday practices of capitalism as something that we should think of as political and not just as economic the this some of the kind of wild-eyed the more wild-eyed libertarian types in my book who are imagining these um you know, what would probably be to you or I dystopias, but to them are utopias where, you know, representative government has been eliminated altogether and everything would be organized along a logic of contract and arbitration insurance. They can seem really um, far-fetched speculations, but the way I see it is like, you know, we go about our lives every day interacting with other people Largely through economic means, like we are live lives that are mediated by money more than, you know, by um, ballots. We, you know, we are meshed in contracts and contracts, obligations, um, debts. We spend money on this or that. We exercise our will that way. So for them, the leap is not that far. We already live, you know, highly commodified lives. We live through the market. And they're just saying like, well, what if we just push that one step farther? And that move is much easier for them than it is for, you know, socialists like myself to try to imagine a completely decommodified world, which would require like walking back all of those things that we interact with every day and rethinking them all together. So part of the book was like, it's kind of a bit of a... um a trick, I suppose, I'm playing with in the book, which is to sort of always with one hand be showing these as sort of fantasies or kind of fever dreams of market radicals, as I call them in the book, but then with the other hand showing that, in fact, the world that they're speculating about isn't as far from our own as we might like to think it is.
1: So do you think de- a democracy is more defined by the ledgers of capitalism than it is defined by votes at the ballot box?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I think these things exist in, in uneasy tension and, and always have. I think that the, we, the best way that historians kind of think about it is that there are like, there's moments in time where there's kind of new settlements between popular sovereignty and the kind of needs of capitalism and the, you know, the settlement that existed in the lifetimes of our parents and our grandparents was one that you know allocated a lot more of the profit share to workers and in turn workers gave kind of labor peace and and gave kind of consensus to the parties in power as that that settlement transforms i think that you know the balance is shifted towards the powers of capital and away from that the that of everyday people through like a series of Often quite blatant legal decisions, including, of course, like Citizens United and all the way down. I think the, uh, the latest, um, series of, of revelations about, about what could probably just best be called the corruption of Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and the kind of shamelessness with which that that's been so far defended or treated suggests to me that, you know, we're entered a kind of moment of settlement in the United States where capitalism doesn't feel the need to apologize that much for itself in the face of democracy. And that's the thing that concerns me is that kind of the, the, that sort of shamelessness or the lack of accountability, um, which, you know, always threatens to become the kind of dominant mood.
1: When vice president Dick Cheney was trying to convince the United States into going to war, in the war on Iraq in 2003, he kept repeating that without free markets, you do not have freedom. So clearly, capitalism is political. But how do we understand capitalism differently when we see its dependence on being outside of democracy and engaging in undemocratic activities? How do we view capitalism differently when we see it not as something that brings about democracy, but that's something that can be antagonistic toward democracy
0: Well, I mean interestingly enough, even though since the the end of the Cold War we've sort of operated with this, I think you know misguided assumption that capitalism and democracy are sort of mutually complementary for much of history when political philosophers have thought about this they've thought something very different i mean someone like joseph schumpeter for example didn't think that capitalism and democracy could coexist he assumed that the actual practice of universal suffrage and representative government would lead to um, the corrosion of competitive capitalism because people would become discontent with like the capture of profit by a small number of people so you would get a move towards socialism so the idea that real democracy would lead to the end of capitalism and socialism is kind of the mainline opinion for the 20th century and and much of the 19th too. So our idea that there could be like a settlement between the two or that assumption is is probably it was just a bit of a blip. I mean, I think that the the point of my book as a historian was really to kind of try to revisit this period that by now has gone on for you know 35 years which is the period from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the present, which if you do kind of world history courses or global history courses in high school, let alone college, um, chances are you kind of consider history to have ended still around the time that the Cold War ended. There isn't; We don't really have a narrative yet for like what world history has been like since then, except for uh, this idea that we had an era of globalization and capitalist democracy became the only um game in town. The point of my book is to kind of question that in two different ways and to suggest at least two different um different storylines that we should have in mind about the world since the end of the Cold War. One is about the 90s being not just a period of like seamless integration and kind of um kumbaya, Coca-Cola, you know, globalization where everyone held hands and joined forces under the sign of the market. In fact, the 90s were a huge time of political fragmentation. There were all kinds of secessions and crack-ups and um, civil wars, dissolutions of of large states into smaller states. And we should think about the 90s that way as much as we think about it as a a time of integration. And then I'm glad that you mentioned Cheney because I think we're only starting now to historicize what the 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 sort of political effects were of the American decision to invade and occupy Iraq in 2003 because I think that really furthered this sense that sovereignty was up for grabs it was something that could be revised it was potentially quite literally up for sale I mean the fa- the 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 contracts that were handed directly out to um, Cheney's associates and, you know, former employees, places like Halliburton and Bechdel, were just an especially crass example of the way that the sort of imperatives of capitalism were subordinate to those of any Wilsonian, even ideas of self-determination. Um, the book that has that kind of through line in it, which is that these libertarian fantasies of state-making and, and exit are sort of can't be taken out of this context. So I really think that when Peter Thiel is sitting there in San Francisco in 2009 saying that he wants to um, exit the nation state and create a new nation state, that statement would not be made without the fact that America was doing something very similar at that very moment in Iraq, right? They were doing failed uh, and catastrophic versions of nation building which led people with money and means and influence to wonder, well, why can't we do the same thing ourselves? Why can't Silicon Valley do a better version of Iraq? And in some cases, the people that I write about in the book were making the comparison directly. Paul Romer, the now Nobel Prize winning Stanford economist then at Stanford, was quite open that when he proposed these things called charter cities, which meant that Countries would give up part of their territory and let a foreign country oversee it, uh, which I call Silicon Valley colonialism in the title of that chapter. He said, you know, we're not talking about what the U.S. is doing in Iraq. That's conquest. That's military. We would do this all by contract and consensus. So that idea that um, you could use commercial relationships in a way that would run roughshod over basic principles of like Westphalian sovereignty, like people on one patch of the earth being able to make their own decisions about their lives. You know, we've been in now two, over two decades of waves of the kind of the besmirching of that, that, that principle of self-determination. And, you know, I think it's starting to come home to us in many ways, with the, the we capitalist of, of Donald Trump in office, not, best understood, I think, not as a kind of ethno-nationalist populist, even if he was that too, but as someone just bringing the practices of capitalism from the smash-and-grab vulture models of the 80s and 90s and 2000s and then saying, hey, why can't we do this at the level of the great powers now?
1: We are speaking with historian Quinn Slobodian, author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Find out more about Quinn At quinslobodian.com, you write that new barricades replaced old ones as the Cold War ended. Goods and money were free to flow, but not people. Walls were built the world over. By one estimate, more than 10,000 miles of borders worldwide have been hardened with barriers. In 1990, the United States planted its first stretch of border fence south of San Diego. President Bill Clinton liberalized trade in North America, while he authorized Operation Gatekeeper, further fortifying the southern border. So the wall came down, and the walls went back up. What does it say about globalization, when instead of taking down barriers, it builds more walls than ever? Soviet communism built walls. Why does today's globalization, are there perhaps shared reasons?
0: Yeah, that passage that you Site there is also drawing directly on a book I really recommend by a political philosopher named Wendy Brown called Walled States Waning Sovereignty. And she's, you know, well before I was, was sort of asking the same question, which is why is it that in this era that we're talking about flows and movement and mobility, there's also all of these these extreme ways of blocking spe- specific kinds of mobility, specifically the, the movement of, of humans and human bodies. And that constitutes what I talk about in this book, but I also talked about in the globalist book you mentioned, which is kind of the people problem for, in in this strong sense, kind of neoliberal or libertarian intellectuals. Even someone like Thiel and the people that he works with, you know, say they're imagining building um, a new polity on like an offshore, you know, abandoned oil platform that will now be like whatever a call center and an experimental laboratory or whatever or they want to build um these wonderful things called hayek islands which would be like a steel pod sitting in the middle of the caribbean that you could just relax and like stream your favorite shows like far from the problems of everyday life in san francisco or whatever. Every time they come up with these fantasies, the most obvious question is always like, who will clean your toilets? Like, who will, who will cook your food? Who will, um, take care of your children if you have them? Who will cut your hair? Whatever. The repression of the need for people, even as an underclass, even as a kind of domestic class is very, very strong in these kind of visions. And it's kind of the most obviously symptomatic, um, aspect to the way that they see the world which is to just render invisible all of the structures that they depend on uh, for the reproduction of their own lives the at a larger level it gets interesting around migration policy because singapore and hong kong for example who when the financial times just reviewed my book this week for example they the author notes that Singapore and Hong Kong are sort of like wonderful success stories. And maybe we shouldn't throw out, you know, the baby of crack up capitalism with the bathwater of the true libertarian uh, nutcases, but the people problem completely plagues those places. Um, Singapore has, you know, well over 75% of its population is non-citizen, meaning they are, On temporary contracts, they don't have the same rights as citizens. They can be deported at will, and often are. They are, if you're talking about domestic workers or construction workers, they're kept, you know, in conditions that are well below those of Singaporeans. Dubai exists on the same model. So the the templates for doing, uh, you know, good version, quote unquote, of crack up capitalism, are all predicated on like really extreme um stratified versions of like two class citizens. Um, one set of citizens has access to all of the things that are good about being part of the state. The other non-citizens are treated as completely disposable. So that is also, I think, coming into focus as one of the kind of um normative ideals for you know keeping growth alive and keeping You know, a certain quality of life up, even under stresses of climate breakdown and and political turmoil and so on, is to just you know fortify these small nodes, secure a kind of class, a a domestic underclass, and um, and then just you know treat them as factors of production that can be allowed in and dispelled at will. But that's a very hard thing to do, actually. Right? I mean, it's very hard to treat a population that way over the long term and ensure that that they won't revolt or quit or in some other way, make life miserable for their employers. Um, It's hard to figure out how to placate a population if you're still trying to do it politically, if they are unhappy about having large numbers of foreigners. The British Conservative Party right now is a great example of being kind of torn between these two poles where half of the more business minded ones want to do like proper you know hyper capitalism and suck in workers when they need them and spit them out when they don't and then the other half is playing to basically the the racism of the their voter base and 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 doing you know performatively cruel things like trying to figure out how to send asylum seekers to Rwanda to be processed and so on so i think that you know this is the this is one of the fault lines of of the current transformations of globalization. It's like, what, where will the people come from? How will they be treated when they arrive? And if you don't want migrant workers or migrant populations, then how are you going to get your own population to do the unpleasant jobs if you're not able to develop robots in time to have them do it for them?
1: It seems like this is the only way that globalization can or in any way does succeed. And that is through this imposition of greater and greater inequality. And as you were saying, eventually, there would probably, you would assume, be some sort of uprising against this imposed inequality. If we do see these voids, we actually notice these zones where the state has given power to profits over people. Once seen What do you think is the likelihood that the public would do anything about it or could do anything about it? Would so much power be concentrated within these zones and the people that control them that nothing can be and nothing will ever be able to be done to stop them?
0: Well, I'll I'll give you two responses to that one, very gloomy, and the other a little less so. The very gloomy one I mentioned in in the conclusion of my book, and it comes from the the incredibly prescient and beautifully written novel, The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And she wrote it in the wake of the LA riots in the 1990s. But it's set, you know, in a world not so far from our current one. And there's an incredible passage where her family is trying to figure out if they should leave their um, insufficiently secure gated compound to take refuge in this, other more secure compound on the coast, on the Pacific coast, that was a desalination plant owned by a conglomerate of foreign interests, Japanese, Canadian, and German, where workers can work and have housing. But when you enter, you lose your status as a citizen because it's like a proper extraterritorial enclave. And she's talking about this, the main character is talking about it with her um, family, and she reflects that. This sounds a lot like the the stories that she'd read about in science fiction novels that that she remembered had always had this sort of setup of a company town with the protagonist who's trapped in there and then you know through heroism and bravery manages to overthrow the leaders of the of the sovereign corporation. But she says, you know, in real life. That's not how it works. You know, people aren't working like hell to overthrow the corporation and escape the company town. They're working like hell to get into the company town. And that's much more the predicament that she, the author and the character sort of predicts for the near future. And I think that's extremely, you know, insightful and important Um, The revision of her idea of how the near future might look. So I think there's that one side of it, which is like, even if you see those zones, then all that might mean is that you're like, well, I guess that's where I'm sending my job application, right? Like kind of in the, the sort of, uh, sorry to bother you, model of uh, just entering the call center permanently. The second, slightly less gloomy thing that I think one can gain by putting on the zone glasses is to look at something like the current industrial policy push by the Biden administration. So there's been a lot of talk from people on the left, sort of political economists watching something like the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act or the CHIPS Act and asking whether or not these are things that one should get behind and cheerlead or if they're just sort of handovers to um, asset managers and financial intermediaries is this just going to profit blackrock more than it's going to profit anyone else and what you would f- you will find is that eventually that big bill that's passed with all of its money you know it touches down to earth and the question of where it touches down is often pretty closely connected to this whole zone question which is like well it will go to a place that um will have a steady supply of workers that will be able to ensure some kind of benefits for corporations who come to who come and set up there. So there will be even in an attempt to kind of change the settlement between capitalism and democracy, it's still likely that we will be doing so within a kind of again patchwork geography of differentiated zones. And that doesn't necessarily have to be um a deal breaker so to speak. Right? I think I think we can we can see the recuperation of the idea of like a fractured legal landscape is just a working necessity as long as it's filled with like a different set of imperatives and a different set of incentives than what had existed before so i think both our bad future and our good future will incorporate this world of zones it's just a question of you know how will will this will the zones work for us or will we work for them
1: And you mentioned one of these zones. In 2017, Saudi Arabia announced a spectacular extraterritorial zone near the Jordanian-Egyptian border, a $500 billion megaproject called NEOM with the backing from some of the world's biggest investors. Planned from scratch, NEOM is intended to cover over 10,000 square miles of desert and Red Sea coastline. And you mentioned how many Bedouin were moved out of the area to put in this NEOM. The plans include a linear city with a pair of twin skyscrapers to stretch horizontally for dozens of miles, build as the largest buildings ever constructed. The scheme is not only a feat of architecture and engineering and arguably magical thinking when it comes to water procurement, but also a laboratory of private government. It is to be run by shareholders rather than the Saudi state, an autonomous government whose laws will be chartered by investors. Shares are to be sold on the Saudi stock exchange. The only obligation of the NEOM board of directors would be protecting the shareholders' investment. The Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman has called it the first zone floated in the public markets and the first capitalist city in the world. Shareholders in a virtual state, not citizens in a real state. How much say would shareholder investors have in their state? How much freedom would they be able to protect in their state?
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, this, so this this thing, which, you know, they pronounce it Neom, is, I think, a perfect example of the dynamic that also we're trying to get at here and that maybe in a way Octavia Butler saw more clearly than others. It's huge. It's ongoing. It's only ballooning in size since I you know, put those words to paper and it printed, got printed a few months ago. It's a big push by Saudi Arabia, ironically, to like pivot away from purely an oil extraction economy, right? And they're, so they're selling all of this as like super sustainable and green and ecological and so on. And it's an attempt to kind of do a Dubai, right? Set up an economy more on offering services offshore and sites for real estate speculation than just things are taking it out of the ground. The reason why I think it captures the dynamic well is it's kind of a global joke, right? I mean, this Neom, it mostly just gets mentioned in kind of like, are you kidding me, kind of uh, editorials or like, you know, MBS builds dystopian wonderland in the desert kind of a thing. And yet, there's so much money going through this that huge numbers of people are getting contracts somehow for it, right? I mean, I literally spoke to someone the other day who said, you know, They're working on something for uh, Oxfam, a nonprofit. And they're also working on something for Neom because the money is flowing around. And if you can make like a lens flare prospectus or like a short film or sketch out some imaginary, you know, vertical agriculture facilities for this probably will never exist linear city that will stretch across the Saudi desert then you could simultaneously laugh at the grandiosity and hubris of MBS and still depend on, you know, his paycheck to pay your next uh, rent bill. So I think that, that the fact that money is so extraordinarily concentrated in the hands of people with such impoverished visions of what human life could look like is itself part of the kind of it's the hell it's part of the hellish nature of our present right and the fact that they're you know filtering their visions of the future through these subnational privatized zone like spaces only sort of tells us that we can we can like disenchant them and laugh at them and even you know like walk around with our they live sunglasses on all day but in the end if they're the ones you know with the resources then we may nonetheless find ourselves like, you know, sucked into the kind of undertow of the worlds that they're creating. So whether or not NEOM ever comes to exist as it's, you know, outlined and drafted on these blueprints, I think it is like a symptom of the world that already exists.
1: We have been speaking with historian Quinn Slobodian. You can find our past interview with him by going to thisishell.com and uh, searching on Slobodian. He also mentioned Wendy Brown. We've had Wendy on the show a few times. You can find our conversations with her also at thisishell.com when you search on her last name, Brown. Uh, Quinn is author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. You can find out more about Quinn at quinslobodian.com and follow Quinn on Twitter at ZeitHistoriker. I also loved your phrase, Coca-Cola globalization. I don't know if you came up with that off the spur of the moment or not, but I just love the idea of Coca-Cola globalization. One last question for you, Quinn. Uh, And as always, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Do we have to choose between democracy and capitalism? Are capitalism and democracy... Bad for each other, and we've got to choose between one or the other because one will corrupt the other.
0: I think we do have to choose between them, and I think we can. I mean, it's it wasn't so long ago in this country that people talked about economic democracy as something that would involve, you know, full expropriation of the means of production and a movement towards a socialist world and a socialist economy. I don't think that that dream has been discredited. I don't think that it's dead, and I think that that's still a kind of decommodified future we should all be working for.
1: Quinn, it's been a pleasure having you back on the show. You know I'm going to annoy you moving into the future, uh, trying to get you back on the show. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being back on. Truly appreciate
0: it. Absolutely. Happy to be here.
1: All right. Take care pretending to know what I'm talking about. Since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Quinn on cryptonauts being scammed into believing they could ever leave the state behind, if that was still as frightening to you as it was to me, and most importantly, you learned something from our talk with Quinn Slobodian, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at ten AM Chicago time in his podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for a completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are
2: responding so far. This week's question from hell is what's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? On Facebook, we have a uh, number of responses uh Carlos C says uh Chuck filling in Tucker Carlson's spot Chuck filling in Tucker Carlson's spot <laughs> I could use the cash uh, the people wanted it apparently <laughs> uh curly B photography says a disaster that takes Fox News off the hair permanently off the air permanently everywhere okay um also same uh Same respondent says, BRICS imploding in, that is B-R-I-C-S, imploding the U.S. economy and turn it into a third world country, ending its colonization of the global south. What I don't get about BRICS is, I mean, it sounds great, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, and... Singapore? In Singapore, yeah. And
1: Singapore getting together to save the world from U.S. capitalism? It's it's a very wealthy place, I know. It's (laughs) like one of the most capitalist places I've
2: ever been. That that list, Bricks, it really drops off after Brazil. It really (laughs) really drops off. Yep. Um, Scott P., uh, bovine diarrhea epidemic at the RNC. (laughs) Yikes. 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 That's a little specific. Kelly H. says, phones hijacked. Predictive text takes over. Can't turn off monkey head filter ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Monkey head filter. Yeah, All that's right. promising.
2: All right. Um, Peter S. says, Liberal schadenfreude turning against the party as it collapses under the weight of its hubris and schemes, metaphorically crushing the insiders that are burning the vast majority of us with championing crazy historical wedge- hysterical wedge issues, making the Dems the party of wars, last gasp imperial death throes, just more profit. Wow, and, <laughs> that was grim, and especially the thought police. Oh, so, so that was a whole. Gotta thing. throw in the thought police at the end. There's I the punchline. Uh, that had me on the edge of my seat as I was reading it. I, know. I didn't know where that was gonna go. <laughs> um, Kim G says, "If a select few individuals spontaneously combusted, we would not have to hear from them ever again." Yeah. I'd probably chuckle.
1: Yeah. Sounds
2: e- good. Elon Musk getting swallowed by a black hole and coming out the other end in a million different pieces that can't be put back together again is what Jennifer S. Uh, has to say about the question. <laughs> I like that one. Um, Carly H. says, Bezos and Musk declaring to... Deciding to race their respective rockets, but a critical error causes their rockets to crash into each other, <laughs> and then the ExxonMobil headquarters. Wow, who's that? <laughs> that is Carly H. All right, Carly H. Some strong responses. Yeah. Aaron D. says, for Tesla to shrink to nothingness as GM, Ford, Toyota, Kia, and VW come to full strength as EV producers. Remember Studebakers? Yes. (laughs) Um, Andy B. says, the entire world wakes up one morning with the immovable realization that cryptocurrency is just plain silly. (laughs) Hear, hear, Andy. Man. Um, On Twitter... um, Jamie K says to the question what's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? He said, "Or they say capitalism's inevitable collapse?" Uh-huh. Question mark. Sure. And at Eat Farts 69, friend of the show, says Walter Peck opening the ecto containment system. Okay, a Ghostbusters yeah, joke. I think that I is think. a Ghostbusters. I think that is <laughs> all right. Okay, all right, well, that's, that's it. And then uh, we have one response on Discord. Uh, Cosmic Mantis says, "I think the answer is in the question." <laughs> All right, then. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, well, you win your
1: choice of This Is Hell stuff. And uh, we will be announcing the winner after Jeff Dortch in The Moment of Truth, which is coming up in just a couple of moments. Will, what's Jeff talking about again on uh, The Moment of Truth? Jeff talks up the half-ass ethos. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And get exclusive access to our weekly Thursday Patreon podcast, which streams live or goes live every Thursday at 10 a.m. at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon, sanctuary. Sounds great, especially if you are the victim of abuse. Safe place to hang, chill, get your head together, free from the hell around us. Sounds like a nice place to go if you are fleeing a war or the enforcement of an unjust law. But what if sanctuary was no longer for people who are fleeing killings or do not want to be killed, but instead want to do the killing and enforcing of whatever laws they believe in? What you've never heard of the Second Amendment sanctuary cities... You haven't heard of these yet? They're also the Second Amendment Sanctuary Counties because they're generally in rural areas. Well, they are a real thing, and the front line in the current culture war, and they're apparently armed with gas-powered lawnmowers and leaf blowers, which are all the culture war's most recent weapons du jour. Also on Patreon, I did not remember somebody bringing war crimes charges against U.S. General Tommy Franks just a little over a month after the U- 2003 war in Iraq began Well apparently that happened And we talked to the person representing The group who was bringing the case Colette Mollert of the Belgian Organization Medicine for the Third World which at the time was Charging Franks with war crimes as the Guardian reported at the time Alleged crimes include the failure of US Troops to prevent the looting of hospitals In Baghdad after the fall of Saddam Hussein as well as a shooting incident On a Red Crescent Ambulance Another claim involves the alleged U.S. bombing of a crowded market in Baghdad, which Iraqi officials claimed killed more than 60 people. Evidence, including video footage and interviews, was gathered by two Belgian doctors who were in Baghdad during the war. Who knew? I must have, but I completely forgot. So the only way you can hear me talk about sanctuaries of all kinds and learn about war crimes charges brought against U.S. General Tommy Franks 20 years ago is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line.
3: The avant-garde economy and its double. A stairway rises from the floor, one step up, two steps up, three, and so on. Then, at the ninth step, an abrupt end. A final step only eight steps shy of the second floor. The pedestrian stands on the inadequate final step, some five feet off the ground, neither fully on the first floor yet unable to attain the second. What manner of half-assed structure is this? The abortive pedestrian asks. Did the architect fail to calculate the number of steps in the flight of stairs correctly? Did the building contractor run out of lumber at this point? The unfinished stairway is just complete enough for a person to fall from, but insufficient to use for ascending entirely from one floor to another. Picture it, the incomplete stairway, standing on its own in a museum gallery or a sculpture garden, for it is, in fact, a work of art. It is an avant-garde stairway, refusing to answer the pedestrian's desire, not out of spite, but from the simple instinct to be itself. It owes you no explanation, no more than it owes you its utility. It owes you nothing. It exists in defiance of humanity's petty needs. Does it not remind us of the words of Texas politician Tim Boyd, who resigned as mayor of Colorado City, Texas, after the week-long deadly power outage two years ago? In response to frustrated constituents complaining about freezing to death, Boyd wrote, The city and county along with power providers and other services, owes you nothing. A government and a utility service defying the people's calls for something, anything, in exchange for their tax dollars, that is called avant-garde government. You can hear or read about that fiasco in my essay from March 4th, 2021, The Quiet Part Out Loud. Are these not the hallmarks of a new aesthetic in the official philosophy of problem-solving? Another municipal analog was last week's record storm and flooding in South Florida. Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is located, got over two feet of rain. This could be due to the trend of global atmospheric warming. Warmer air can hold more moisture, a commonly understood cause for storms dumping unusually destructive amounts of rain. Whatever the reason for the massive amount of water... They're doing something about it in Broward County. The most rainfall in a single day Fort Lauderdale streets are built to manage right now is three inches. 25 or so inches of rain, needless to say, is going to complicate things. Not to worry, however. Fort Lauderdale is on track to improve their ability to move stormwater out of the streets of the city. At the end of this current run of design improvements, instead of a mere three inches of stormwater, their new system will be able to handle a whole seven inches. Then a 25-inch rain would put them only... 18 inches below adequate. If you're going to get your house flooded, better to do it in a city submerged under a mere 18 inches deep instead of 22. That is some avant-garde improvement. Ever been on welfare? Good luck surviving on it. Food stamps? You get almost enough to inadequately feed your family. But maybe you're one of those model citizens who has a job and even health insurance. You will often find leave and treatment for illness or accidents suffered by you or a family member. Or leave for pregnancy to offer insufficient time or services to care for yourself or your loved ones. And of course, public education, public libraries, and most public services are notoriously sardonically underfunded. Even the U.S. military doesn't offer its troops insufficient food. And during the recent wars in the Persian Gulf, private companies pocketed taxpayer dollars rather than supply troops with the vehicles and body armor, facilities, and food they'd been contracted to provide. Not stepping up to the job is the model of behavior set by corporations and the government cash cow they own and which lays golden cow pies for them. And they complain that no one wants to work anymore. Look in the mirror, oligarchs. Government is getting the people it deserves. Half measures as official policy are a fascinating behavior, a theatrical way for the stewards of a society, whether elected or self-appointed, to resign themselves to incompetence and defeat. We'll surely see many more such absurdist, pyrrhic gestures worldwide as coastlines submerge, forests burn, mass shootings escalate, famines and wars drive mass migrations of people, etc. The wildest thing to me is how much effort and expense goes into doing that which is less than meaningful. Even the bread and circuses are half-assed. The iPhone is buggy and unwieldy. It tortures and exploits those who make it. Products routinely fail to deliver what they promise, and that is exactly what's expected of them. Instead of bread, we work and obey for bitter, undercooked dough. Where circuses are advertised, we are greeted by rusted scaffolding from which hang moth-eaten, mildewed shreds of canvas. Acrobats tumble from shoddily-made equipment— but continue to go through the motions of performing on crutches, in bandages, bone-setting hardware, and prosthetic limbs. It humbles me, your socialist leisure correspondent. It puts my small efforts and non-efforts to shame. The rulers are proving to be true masters of half-assery as a mode of operation. The rulers are the avant-garde. We artists are merely the shadow trailing after them. This has been the Moment of
0: Truth. Good day.
1: Uh-oh. Oh, you caught me off guard. I was in the middle of doing two or three different <laughs> this
3: things. Is, this is a little bit of a, yeah, you know, it's called live radio. And that's right.
1: A little bit of a train wreck that Will will be cleaning up after, yep. like it's East Palestine later on. That's right. Is that a little, is <laughs> Sorry that a little, about that, Jeffy. Was that a little too soon, by the way, right. in the East that's Palestine right. joke? Probably.
3: What? Too soon? Yeah, maybe.
1: All right, Jeffy. I- what? Are we out of time already? We are out of time already. <laughs> That's just because I'm having an intestinal issue I have to deal with.
3: Oh, my God. You got to get out of there. <laughs> yes. You all clear the studio, everyone.
1: All <laughs> right. I'll talk to you soon. Stay beautiful. Ciao, baby. You too. Live from land from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Will, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell and tell us what that question from hell was. We went through all of them. And- all right. So uh, I really like Carly H.'s Bezos. And Musk getting into a rocket crash. That's a really great answer to this week's question from hell. Kelly H. mentioning the monkey head filter being permanently (laughs) on. That seemed to tickle Will a lot. So, Kelly H., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is get in touch with us and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. That you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get that piece of merchandise to you in the mail post haste. My answer to this week's question from hell again, What's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding? That's easy. Two of Elon Musk's rockets exploding. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Uh, Who are our
2: guests who are going to be on next week's show will next week we have uh, a couple of guests uh, we got an email from listener leo g which we read on the air earlier this week leo sent a guest suggestion writing uh, christopher ketchum the, Inter- the intercept and freelance reporter examining the futility of green growth without shedding demand and delusions of sustained economic growth so that's exactly what we're doing Our guest to start next week will be Christopher Ketchum, who wrote the Truthdig article, Green-Tinted Glasses, Absent from Most Public and Policy Conversations, is Any Acknowledgement of the Possibility that Renewable Energy Cannot Power a High-Consumption Civilization. This series will explore mounting evidence that a major downshift in consumption is looming, and explore the implications of energy realism for human progress and this flourishing. And uh, who else do we have confirmed? Um, We also have journalist and author uh, Gayutra Bahadur, who will be on to talk about her Boston Review article, Unmaking Asian Exceptionalism, on violence and the possibility of solidarities in America. Gayutra is the author of Cooley Woman, The Odyssey of Indenture. She's associate president. Yeah, it sounds like a big downer. Yeah, it does. Um, she's the Associate Professor of Journalism and English at Rutgers University in Newark. And we are cur- uh, currently awaiting a confirmation
1: from next week's uh, third and final guest. As always, we will have the past inside the present with Sebastian Vupper. This Week in Ros- Rotten History from Renaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin with A Moment of Truth. A huge thank you to all this week's producers, Will Ippen, Dan Kugler, Kat Jaravinen, Also, thanks to Jeff, Rinaldo, Sebastian, Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash hell when I will be talking about Sanctuary. And we will be playing an interview about a war crimes case being brought against U.S. General Tommy Franks 20 years ago, which is apparently a thing that actually happened, but I don't remember. Hang out with me tonight during This Is Hell office Hours, our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. And if you do, I'll give you a book just for showing up. It all starts around 6 PM this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Drop by, hang out, enjoy the beer garden, have a drink. If you want, I'll gladly give you a tour of our studios. If you're interested in possibly becoming a producer here on the show, we can talk about that or anything you want to chat me up about. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening, beginning at 6 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap Tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's
3: stupid.